Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from November of 2018 entitled Cyanobacteria, Toxic Tide or Treasure. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. Welcome to the science cafe tonight. Um, my name's Amy Harris, and I'm the director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan. And we're so glad that you're here on this chilly fall night, maybe almost winter night. Um, tonight's Science Cafe is called Cyanobacteria, Toxic Tide or Treasure. And uh, we're looking forward to getting started with that, but I want to share a little information with you first. Um, I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this room available. And then I wanted to uh, let you know some things about our museum. So right now we're closed, but we're getting ready to open a really fabulous new museum for you. And we're opening in stages. So right now, on Monday through Friday, from 10 to 5, you can walk into the new museum atrium at the Biological Sciences Building, which is the new building built just to the north of our old museum building. And uh, so you can come in and see the mastodons and look at the whales hanging overhead. Just to remind you, we're open Monday through Friday. We're not open on weekends or holidays, so it's a kind of a limited sneak peek. In April, we are having our grand opening when we'll open about half of our exhibits, plus the planetarium and the museum store. And then in November of 2019, we'll open the rest of the exhibits. So we're going to give you a lot of reasons to keep coming back to the new museum. And people who have seen a little of it are really excited about it. So we'll keep you posted if you want to keep updated. Um, you can put your name on the evaluation forms on your table or on our check-in list, and we will send you email. You can also follow us on social media. And best of all, you could become a member. There's Nora, who's going to wave back there. Nora can help you if you want to become a member of the museum. If you are a member, you will be invited to see the museum ahead of the public when we open. So that'll be an exciting thing. We also just launched our Buy a Bone campaign today. We're buying a new dinosaur for the new museum. So if you're interested in that, talk to Nora, look at our website, um, plenty of information available for that. And it, by the way, dinosaur bones make a great holiday gift. <laughs> so I'd like to invite uh, Gus to come up. He's going to tell you about Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Society, which is sponsoring tonight's Science Cafe. Gus Bachtel. Thank you, Amy. So let me say, just say a word about Sigma Psi. It is not a fraternity. It is an honor society for scientists. It was formed in 1886, back when um, Phi Beta Kappa would not allow scientists and engineers and other scientifically minded people to, to be members of, to be honored. Uh, so Sigma Psi was created in 1886 at Cornell University. Our chapter was formed in 1903, so we're quite an old chapter. We're in the 16th of chapters out of now more than 300. And we, our chapter does things like, well, we sponsor this science cafe. We um, honor a teacher of the year, a science teacher or science and math teacher of a year every year. We give prizes to students who have excellent posters at science fairs. And this year, we had a symposium 
on gene editing, which I think was very well appreciated. And next spring, we're going to have a symposium on the legal, ethical, and social implications of self-driving cars. So look out for that. And um, we're really pleased to be able to honor the Natural History Museum. And I'll pass this on to Kira. Thank you so much for sponsoring uh, this Science Cafe. And um, some of you asked me why there wasn't a donation box at today's Science Cafe, and it's because it's sponsored, so no do donations are required. But thank you for, for this evening. Donations are great for the new museum. Um, <laughs> um, some people also have expressed concern to me uh, after last month that science cafes are ending, and I want to allay your concern. Science cafes are not ending. They're taking a brief hiatus so that we can prepare all of the wonderful new hands-on programming uh, at the new site. And I can't do that and schedule science cafe speakers at the same time, because I'm only one person. So um, after this evening, there will be a hiatus. We won't have science cafes in the winter semester of this year, but we will restart in the fall of 2019. So just, just to allay any concerns. Um, and there is some discussion and rumors of science cafes in Detroit, but we'll see where that goes. Uh, so keep your eyes open on those event emails. Um, for those of you who might not have been to a science cafe before, um, we have very brief uh, presentations from our speakers to start us off. Um, that is about the first uh, 30 minutes or so. And then we'll have, um, whoops, we have some beeping. Okay, well, maybe it'll keep beeping. Um, uh, then after that, um, we, will we will have a discussion um, period at your tables. So there's some discussion questions that you should see at your tables. And then we'll come back together at the end for a, a large group discussion. So that's sort of the format in a nutshell. Um, and I want to also mention, in addition to Connor O'Neill's and Sigma Xi, um, this cafe is also part of an NSF career grant um, for one of our speakers. So uh, we have lots, lots and lots of uh, affiliations for tonight. Um, so I have two wonderful speakers uh, today, and I'll introduce them. Um, Vincent Deneth um, is an associate professor at, <laughs> I gotta get glasses. I, I even increased the font size. I gave you a promotion, though. At least it didn't go the other way, or go, go, go the other way around. Um, <laughs> let me start this over. My goodness. All right. Vincent Dunna is an assistant professor at the uh, in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the U of M. Um, he was educated in Belgium as an environmental engineer, and he did his PhD uh, split between Belgium and MSU. That must have been complicated. Um, trying to understand how the genetic makeup of certain bacteria allows them to be strong degraders of environmental contaminants. He continued his studies as a postdoc at UC Berkeley, where he studied how communities of microbes carry out key tasks in keeping ecosystems running as drivers of both environmental and human health and disease, environmental and human health and disease. 
Currently, his lab focuses on how invasive species re-engineer microbial systems in freshwater lakes and with both highly visible, think harmful algal blooms, I'm sure you've all heard of those, and less visible, think tuning greenhouse gas emissions effects. So please welcome Vincent Denna. Wait a minute. So Anthony Vecchiarelli earned his PhD in... Here's Anthony. Did you wave? Okay, <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> he earned his PhD in molecular genetics and microbiology at the University of Toronto, where he studied how DNA segregate, segregates in bacteria. And he then did postdoctoral work at the National Institutes of Health, where he developed a cell-free approach to visualize the biochemistry that drives subcellular organization. So he's studying the little things inside cells but without the cells. Okay. Um, I think I got that. In, <laughs> in January 2017, Anthony started his own lab as an assistant professor at the University of Michigan in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. We have two biology departments. It's a little confusing sometimes, but they're now both in one building, so that's better. Um, and um, the, the Vecchiarelli lab tackles how cells organize their constituent parts using creative interdisciplinary approaches. And the techniques they use emphasize reconstitution of cellular organization outside of cells and advanced imaging techniques. So please welcome Anthony. <laughs> All right. I'm told that Vincent is going to start us off, and I'll be advancing the slides. Perfect. All right, thanks very much, Kira. All right, do I, actually, where do I stand? Do I stand in the middle? Do I stand wherever? What do people prefer, over here? Uh -huh. Okay. All right, good, so. All right, X oh, that's right, very good point. The slides are behind me, so, okay, that makes sense. All right, perfect, so thank you very much. Uh, thanks, everybody, for showing up, um, and thank you for the invitation to, to be part of this event. Um, so basically, right, cyanobacteria, toxic tide or treasure, and um, so my part here will be in the toxic tide part, uh, which is probably the part also that a lot of you have heard a lot about. So, you know, the background I'm going to give here, you know, for some of this will be so like, yeah, 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 we've heard all of this, which is good. I see a lot of people have some food and a drink in front of you, so that's good. So you can train yourself that way. Uh, hopefully I'll still be able to, even for those people, you know, provide a couple of new elements that can help you in your later uh, discussions. And then also this helps set the stage for, uh, for Anthony to build upon uh, with the things he will talk about. Um, so basically our lab um, studies big lakes. Yep, you can advance it. And we basically study how tiny creatures matter for these big lakes. And these tiny creatures, you know, very tiny, you know, they fit between my two pressed against fingers here. Uh, are mostly bacteria, um, but we also look at algae and interactions actually between these two different groups. Um, you know, tonight here, of course, the focus will be on uh, algae, right? Uh, here it says algal groups in Lake Erie, but you can talk about algae in any aquatic system, right? So basically, just as you have the forests on land, in any water, the base of the food web will be produced by algae. So they're really key, they're really important. So you know, already there's something really good about algae, right? They're really important because they keep the rest of the system going. And about half of all the oxygen you breathe 
right, in your life is actually produced by algae in aquatic systems, right? So they're really important. Um, so you have here is a couple of different types of algae that are up here, and a lot of them are good, right? Like a lot of diatoms are good, a lot of green algae are good, even a lot of these what's called blue-greens, but they're actually bacteria, right? Uh, these, a lot of these bacteria are also really good. They do all that really good work to keep you breathing. Um, I think we can all agree that's a good thing. But there's also some that are a problem. Um, and um, that's when we get to these harmful algal blooms or har harmful cyanobacterial blooms, right? And so a couple of these species are here, Macrocystis and Abena, um, you know, Planktothrix, Lingbia. Um, and so why are they harmful? It's because they have the ability to produce toxins, right? Toxins, you know, there's a whole bunch of them listed here, saxotoxin, you know, anatoxin, uh, and then microcystin here in particular is one that is maybe one of the more, uh, one of the terms you've heard before. Um, yeah, advance that. Um, and so these become particularly problematic when you get these really massive blooms developing, right? Uh, here, most of you are familiar with this image. It's satellite imagery imposed on a schematic map uh, of the land around Lake Erie. And so here is the scale of these blooms. It's just put up there, right? These blooms span over hundreds of kilometers, right? So a very large area of very high densities of these algae, which produce toxins. And this can become really problematic, just as you know, a couple of years back, right? 2014, about a half million people in the Toledo area basically uh, had no longer, this is the mayor of Toledo there calling, it's like, why do you have my image up? It's not credited. Um, so basically lost drinking water for a couple of days, right? It's a serious issue, right? We can always think, open the tab, drink your water. By now with the things in the news last couple of years, both in, in, in Flint and, and Toledo, we know, we know better, I guess, so that things can really be affected. And so here a couple of days later, he was able to show people it's safe to drink again. But again, why was this? Tiny little things that produce toxins at massive amounts when these blooms get so big uh, that overwhelm the water treatment systems and um, basically cause the problems. Now, it's not, yeah, it's not only an issue in Lake Erie, right? So it's an issue nationwide. And so these colors here indicate the percentage of aquatic systems in each county, basically, uh, affected by, at some point in the year, by uh, harmful algal blooms. Um, and so the red is basic things where about 2 to 70% of the water surface in that county was affected at some point in the year by toxin-producing blooms, right? So this is all over the country, right? Uh, you might have heard a lot of the stories in Florida, right? These are the red tides offshore. These are eukaryotic algae, but actually it's partially fueled by the near shore and, you know, kind of the, you know, the more freshwater systems where the rivers come in, the estuaries, where you actually have a lot of microcystin blooms as well. So it's kind of, they get kind of double, a double whammy there. So we can go to the next slide. And it's not only the U.S., right? So you have here beautiful images of the Green Lake Erie, and here's Florida. But, you know, up there is a lake in Guatemala, there's China, South Africa. So all over the world, basically, you see these blooms. And not only is like you see these blooms all over the world, but they're getting worse, right? It's more frequent. The blooms are getting bigger. They last longer. You see them in more places, right? So it's a problem. Okay, so what causes these blooms, right? Okay, so the, simple, the simplest part of the story, I guess, is all of this is in the end excessive phosphorus and nitrogen, so nutrients that run off the land into our water systems, right? And so this, you know, part of that is agricultural runoff, right? And then urban runoff, right? 
It also comes from other places. You know, it can be your, if you have a septic system, your septic system is leaking, right? If you live right on lakes, a lot of these houses have septic systems that leak into the lakes, causing issues there, more localized. Um, they get eventually to, you know, can, the blooms can be in rivers as well, but in the water, right? Where then when the temperature gets warmer, so early in the season, typically you have other algae that grow. When the water gets above a certain temperature, the cyanos take off, right? All the nutrients are there, nice amount of sun, and then you can get these blooms. Okay, so that's the basic premise, yeah. Um, and so if you look in the Great Lakes area, back to the Great Lakes area, where you see these blooms, I've kind of circled them there in the red, is like the major areas where you see blooms. The map is, um, you know, Canada, of course, doesn't cause any problems there, right? <laughs> They're great. Uh, there, everything is white, always snow covered, but that stops at the border. And so green basically is where you have a lot of agriculture, red are urbanized areas, and that's typically where you see, right? That's where you get a lot of eutrophication, a lot higher amount of nutrients that get into the water. Uh, you can go ahead. And um, so this, of course, didn't always used to be the case. Um, who knows what the black swamp is? Some people. So there used to be this area in northern Ohio, uh, which basically was this massive swamp. And, you know, even though you think like, ah, yeah, typical Ohio, you know, big bad swamp. No, actually this was a great thing, right? Because basically this retained the water, basically gradually got the nutrients out, and so you had a lot less issues. But then, now, if you drive through there, there's no more swamp. And I know not many people like to go to Ohio maybe, but, you know, there's no more swamp. It's a lot of productive agricultural land. And there's all this drain tile that was pulled, uh, put in, and basically by the early 1900s, um, no more swamp and great agricultural land, and that's good. But the problem is, of course, that really increased the amount of nutrients, how quickly the nutrients, how quickly the water ran off into the Maumee River and to the lake. Um, and so that's how you see from the 1920s to 1964 here, gradually more and more and more algae. And these algae then at some point started no longer being eukaryotic algae, but turned into cyanobacterial algal blooms. Um, so in 1972, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement was signed, it's an international agreement between Canada and the US, um, to basically realize, okay, we need to bring these, these things down. It's when the phosphorus was pulled out of uh, uh, laundry detergents and things like that, so it can really reduce, particularly the, this red here, the point, point sources like wastewater treatment plant inputs, etc., to kind of get pulled that down. And the red dotted line is sort of the target levels, and they were able to pull these levels down. Right, so really, somewhere where we agreed, we see the problem, we know the cause, here's a great policy, let's work internationally, bring it down. And we were successful. And so what do we see? Indeed, algal biomass starts declining after the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. But then, early to mid-90s, boom, they come back with a vengeance. Why? We did the right thing. We solved it, right? So, okay, what happened? Yeah, Kira. Um, okay, so a, a variety of things happened. Um, so it's not just one single thing that was like, it's the farmer's fault again. So no, it's, that's part of the thing. So agricultural practices definitely changed. Uh, we changed when we apply fertilizer. We change the form of fertilizer. So a lot of more reactive phosphorus is applied to the fields now. Um, um, we also changed, uh, there's a lot less winter uh, cropping done. So the fields lay bare uh, a lot more during the time when there can be a lot more runoff uh, coming from them in the springtime. Uh, other aspects are climate change, um, increased temperatures, uh, larger uh, amplitude precipitation events um, that play a role as well. 
more droughts that lead to less flushing of the system during the summer months. Species invasions is another one. And so what you see on this graph is just how the DRP is dissolved to reactive phosphorus, this form of phosphorus that the algae immediately can take up and grow from it, went down, 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 and then started going back up again. Yep. Uh, okay. And so another one here, so you can start this video. This is video that was captured by um, an incoming undergraduate student working on a summer project. What you see here is a mussel. You might have just, oh, that was cool, as she says. Uh, so you might want to replay it one more time. So what this here is, this is zebra mussel in a tank of water with Lake Erie water. All the stuff you see floating are colonies of microcystis. And you see it sort of like spitting something out, right? So these mussels are really picky eaters. Sometimes you have even images of like a colony comes floating around, it comes close and the mussel is like, no. And it just like blows it away. So these mussels can sort basically their food and it's like, we don't like this stuff, these cyanobacteria need to go. So you eat all the good algae, leave the microcystis in the water. When did the mussels come? Anybody knows? They came from, they came from ballast water, but when, when, did they, when were they first found? Lake Sinclair, mid 80s, right? And so they really started coming up in the 90s, early 90s. So this also coincides with the same moment. So they play a really important role. Okay, so yep. <laughs> one more time. Thank you, Maria. There we go. Okay, and so that, that little blob there will then redissolve. Those colonies are perfectly viable and they just get back in the water. Right? All right, so I'll leave you here. And I think that's also on your slide. That's a little bit more for during the discussion, probably. You know, these are sort of outstanding questions that are still there. Uh, and we can think about that more later. But there we go. That's my spiel. I'm not as tall as Vincent, so I'm going to use a laser pointer because I can't slam dunk the screen with <laughs> Vincent can. Okay, uh, first I'd just like to thank the organizers and uh, the ones that have been able to fund this event. I relish the opportunity to talk to the public about science and cyanobacteria in particular because they are certainly an underappreciated organism. Um, so when, um, you can click three times, Kara. I overly animated my slides. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so um, here I just wanted to sort of summarize my relationship with cyanobacteria, how I got involved. As Kira mentioned initially, I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Uh, studied how DNA is replicated and segregated in bacteria so that when a cell pinches into two, both have a copy of that DNA so they can continue to replicate. I then went down to DC at the National Institute of Health where I developed a variety of um, microscopy approaches to take these organizing systems inside of a bacterial cell, purify them, make them squeaky clean, put molecular flashlights on them so that you can actually watch them interact with each other outside of the cell. And by doing so, we can understand how they interact inside of the cell. And uh, in January 2017, came to Michigan and used these techniques to study a wide variety of organizing systems in bacteria and I think I should step back and say that bacteria have long been thought, and I'm sure that many of you think, that bacteria are really just sacks of enzymes or sacks of protein. They're not. They are intricately organized, and those organized processes are excellent targets for new drugs, for antibiotic-resistant bacteria. 
I'm not studying any of those. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, when I came to Michigan, I had a choice. We have this excellent technique now to study a wide variety of, of self-organizing systems in bacteria. I decided to choose, I chose cyanobacteria, and I chose a really interesting um, machine inside cyanobacteria that's actually responsible for fixing almost half of the Earth's remediated carbon dioxide. <clears throat> and so, um, as Vincent showed, uh, this behind here was a satellite image of uh, these blue-green algal blooms, which are cyanobacteria, they're not algae, and we study them at the single molecule level, uh, single cell level, and even more so, we're able to peer inside these cells using these molecular flashlights to see how, um, how these cells are organized, how their innards are organized. Yes, Kara, thanks. So why study cyanobacteria? You can press it one, two, three, four times. <laughs> okay. Oh, there we go. Okay, so why study cyanobacteria? Well, if you look at this, this is called a phylogeny. You can see all these different types of organisms. We're around here. There's birds. Here are bacteria and a whole bunch of other different organisms. What I just wanted to emphasize here is that here's the beginning of Earth. And right here it says oceans rust. That means that this is when oxygen started getting into our atmosphere. Cyanobacteria are responsible for that great oxidation event 2.5 billion years ago. And so, as Vincent said, if you like oxygen, you like cyanobacteria. In addition to that, if you look at this, here's another phylogeny. These trees represent how similar organisms are. If you look up here and you look at this, here is a cyanobacterial DNA, you'll notice that it's very similar to chloroplast DNA. The reason for this is that a long time ago, there was a eukaryotic cell that engulfed and tried to eat a cyanobacterial cell, but instead of digesting it, it decided to take advantage of its photosynthetic activity and use its energy. So this is called endosymbiotic theory. So understanding cyanobacteria also gives us a, a, a window into how chloroplasts evolve. And perhaps one, I mean, these are all important, but what's really striking and beautiful is that the sun's energy is harnessed by phytoplankton, by cyanobacteria, and their ability to use CO2 and light for their growth is what's feeding the rest of the organisms on Earth. They're at the bottom of the food chain. Here are the phytoplankton, here's the sun, phytoplankton, whole bunch of lower order organisms which fish eat and then we eat everything. Uh, next slide. So one of the really intriguing features about microorganisms, about cyanobacteria, is that they're photosynthetic. Just like plants, they can use light, carbon dioxide, as well as water coming from the root system to grow. This is chemical, there's a molecule called chlorophyll. Yes, that's marijuana. <laughs> For everyone that's whispering to each other. It's legal in Canada. I think it's legal here now. Good for you. Good. <laughs> Um, this is being recorded, isn't it? Oh, jeez. <laughs> My tenure at the University of Michigan has been great. I've, this one year was fantastic. Uh, so plants can use light and CO2 for their growth. They make sugar, but I want you to, what I want to emphasize here is that a byproduct of photosynthesis, something that plants don't want, something that we need, is oxygen. Can you uh, press it twice? Oh, back one, sorry. Okay, so cyanobacteria are green for the same reason. They have chlorophyll, they have these pigments that allow to, uh, the cell to absorb sunlight, and they use that for the exact same reason plants do, 
With water and carbon dioxide, they can grow using sunlight and the byproduct is oxygen. So why am I emphasizing this byproduct of oxygen aside from the reasons that are obvious that we need them? Uh, yes, you can go, thank you. Uh, the reason is uh, largely dependent on this enzyme that's called Rubisco. You don't really, it's, so it's, it stands for ribulose-1,5-bisphosphate carboxylase oxygenase. The name really doesn't mean much. What you, what's, what's important is that it's the most abundant enzyme on Earth, found on, in all plants and microorganisms that can fix carbon dioxide. And the way that this enzyme works, it's a protein that can bind carbon dioxide and convert it into energy for the cell to grow. And the byproduct of this is oxygen. You can click uh, once more. And the reason why this is a problem, not for us, but for plants and for cyanobacteria, is that this enzyme isn't too picky. It can bind CO2, but it can also bind oxygen and produce this byproduct reaction, this waste product called photorespiration. And if it goes to this waste product, it's actually becoming less efficient. So both plants and cyanobacteria had to evolve ways to avoid oxygen so that they continue to grow using carbon dioxide. And so here I wanna to introduce to you what's known as the Rubisco seesaw. Plants are really good, uh, the Rubisco enzyme in plants are really good at holding on to CO2 so much so that oxygen isn't that much of a competitor. So that's how plants uh, work around the, the oxygen issue. But there's a trade-off. With these enzymes, if you bind really strongly to your substrate, your activity suffers. And so there's the, there's the seesaw. You can uh, press it a few times. One, one more, one more. Great. So for plant rubisco, you have high specificity and a low activity. So this is the rate. Plant Rubisco can uh, use five molecules of carbon dioxide per second. Cyanobacterial Rubisco, the seesaw switches. It has an incredibly high activity, 150 times more efficient than plant Rubisco at removing carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. Remember, almost half of the carbon dioxide remediated from our atmosphere is done by cyanobacteria, by this particular enzyme. But it comes at a cost. It, is, it has a very low specificity. That means that oxygen can now interact going through this uh, unwanted photorespiration uh, process, making this wasteful byproduct. So this is the issue. How does cyanobacterial rubisco prevent oxygen from being a significant competitor for this enzyme? And so what I'm showing you here is an electron micrograph of a cyanobacterial cell. You can freeze these cells and then slice them in half so that you can take a look at what's inside. And so here are thylakoid membranes that allow them to absorb light, but I want you to pay attention to these black blobs. If we purify those blobs, what we see are icosahedral shells, these icosahedrons, sort of look like viral capsids, but there's no viral DNA in them. Uh, you can click again. Here's a cartoon image of what these carboxysome shells look like. And when you look inside of this shell, it's chocked full of rubisco. So what cyanobacteria do is they hide their enzyme from oxygen. They enrich the carboxysome environment with CO2 and prevent oxygen from being even able to interact with the enzyme. 
And for those of you that are interested in knitting, or you can go back one, if we're interested in knitting and, uh, or crocheting, uh, my colleague, Dr. Uh, Jessica Polka, has a, a website called Wunderkammer, uh, where you have detailed instructions on how to build your own carboxysome and the enzymes within. Scientists, right? I know. Um, so again, to, to review, carboxysomes turn carbon dioxide into energy for the cell to grow. So this is what we want. Carbon dioxide interacts with rubisco inside this really cool shell. Energy comes out so that the cell can grow. If you can press one more, I got this really fancy animation of oxygen trying to get in, and it can't. All right. So I just wanted to give you some data from my lab. Um, so here's a, a microscopy image of these carboxysomes, those little dots down the length of the cell. Those are carboxysomes. And what we found in our lab is this really cool oscillating protein in pink that goes from cell pole to cell pole. And this dynamic oscillation somehow positions these carboxysomes down the length of the cell. Why does it do this? Uh, Kira? We're, we're, we're a mechanistic lab. We want to understand how. And so in order to understand how something works inside of a cell, do you know what scientists typically do? If you want to understand how something works inside of a cell, what it might be doing? Break it. You break it. So you destroy that activity and see what happens to the cell. And so what we did is that we removed that inheritance system. We removed that oscillating protein. We deleted it from its genome. And what we find is that now carboxysomes ball up into a single massive aggregate that is not very functional anymore. And in addition to that, when the cell divides, one inherits this massive aggregate, the other one is now devoid of carboxysomes. It can no longer use carbon dioxide for its growth. There's a significant disadvantage for growth. And so it looks as though this inheritance system that we've identified, you can click twice, Kara. In the absence of this inheritance system, you get this all or nothing inheritance. When the cell divides, one inherits the aggregate, the other one doesn't. But what this inheritance system is, seems to be doing is positioning these carboxysomes like a chain down the length of the cell so that when it divides, not only are they faithfully inherited, but at the right copy number. Okay, so going back to why I chose carboxysomes out of all the other things that we could study in bacteria. Um, as Dr. Neff mentioned, um, carbon dioxide is rising. You can actually click twice. Um, it'll, it'll continue to go. Should. And so what, what this is showing here are uh, temperature abnormalities across all countries in the world. And as you can see, as we're reaching uh, 2016, 2017, it's getting obscene. And this correlates very well with atmospheric CO2. Congratulations, we all met, reached a mile point last year where we are at the highest level of atmospheric carbon dioxide in the past two million years. And so if we, yes, exactly, everyone give a round of applause. And so I think that this, um, this timeline sum, summarizes it nicely, uh, or at least how the public or, or uh, politicians responded to the data. Climate change isn't real, fine, it's real, not our fault, oops, our bad. And uh, this is me uh, writing over what's actually written um, in this, you can imagine what the cartoon actually says. We're here. <clears throat> so the idea, thanks Kira, yeah. So can we use cyanobacteria and its ability to fix carbon dioxide to combat, this, uh, combat climate change? Um, there are people that are trying to do this and I just wanted to give you an example. So um, in Kentucky, 
90% of its power comes from uh, coal, power, uh, coal power plants. <clears throat> the University of Kentucky, and, and I should say that uh, there are federally, currently there are federally mandated CO2 limits that are issued per state. Um, that may change recently and, and may not be as uh, regulated as much as it is now. Um, there are people looking for alternatives. Like the University of Kentucky, they have this pilot program for carbon capture using cyanobacteria. And so what we're seeing here is a coal-fired power plant that is plumbed into cyanobacteria photobioreactors. So instead of using vast stretches of ponds, what we have are these vertical bioreactors that are exposed to light, so the cyanobacteria can, gr cyanobacteria can grow, and their food is coming from this coal-fired power plant. That's right, the CO2 is coming in, and this is scalable and cost-effective. It's about a dollar per liter of cyanobacteria. And when you grow these cyanobacteria up, you can then concentrate them, use them for biofuels, animal feed, fish feed. In addition to pot potentially combating climate change, uh, we are also dealing with a food crisis. Currently, our, the world population is 7.2 7 billion. By uh, 2050, it'll be 9.5. And so what I wanted to show you here was just our agricultural efficiency. Our real data is, is, are these dots. This is our agricultural efficiency. Our uh, TFP stands for total factor productivity. <coughs> the uh, solid lines represent the projections. And so this is our current projection if we keep everything as the status quo. This green line is what's necessary to keep up with our population growth. There is a serious deficiency. And if we start looking at where people, for the people that will suffer most, the, this is the projection for low-income countries. And so um, our agricultural yield is not going to keep up with population growth here. So I showed you a little machine in cyanobacteria that can turbocharge photosynthesis. And one of the ideas is to get carboxysomes into plants, agriculturally viable plants, to boost their photosynthetic efficiency, increase yields, make them grow better and faster. And so here's a cyanobacterial cell. Here's the carboxysome that makes carbon dioxide turn to a sugar for the cell to grow. The idea is to take the genes necessary to make a carboxysome, put it into a plant chloroplast so that you can turbocharge photosynthesis in plants. And this is not a pipe dream. It's not just a cartoon. I wanted to show you data from a paper that is uh, two months old. It just came out. Here is a model organism that's typically used in plant biology labs, tobacco leaves. This syringe here has DNA that can make carboxysomes. And you see those little black dots? If this, is a, this is a chloroplast within this leaf. If we zoom in even further, you can notice how they have sort of an icosahedral structure. If you, if you uh, smash those leaves open, bust open the chloroplast, and purify what's in them, Kira, you have fully formed and fully functional carboxysomes in plant chloroplasts. So this is a milestone achievement in one day being able to photosynthet photosynthetically turbocharge uh, agricultural crops. And so here I just wanted to summarize some of the treasures. They make oxygen, they remove CO2, they're a photosynthetic powerhouse compared to plants. Uh, they are the foundation of our food chain and for commercially viable products, uh, they can make bioplastics fuels and they could potentially combat climate change through carbon sequestration. 
And here is my lab, right beside the Biological Sciences Building and the museum. There's the planetarium. These are my two PhD students, um, Lisa and Anne, and my postdoc, uh, Josh. Many of them are in the audience. I think they should stand up and get a round of applause because they're the ones that do all the work and I get to present all the data. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wow, I just, every time these guys talk, they blow my mind. Um, so you have some uh, discussion questions on the table. Um, we have some ringers from uh, in the audience. Raise your hand if you're here from one of the two labs. Just, just put your hand up so we know who you are. Yeah, I forgot to put my people on the spot. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there. There are, so there are, there are people here uh, who know more than um, uh, the average uh, person uh, and can answer questions. And our, our, our guests are also going to be circulating. So please discuss for a while. And um, if you have questions, tackle one of our ringers or one of our guests. We'll get back together in about uh, 20 to 30 minutes. Here's where I really try hard to interrupt your wonderful conversations. So, wow, um, I'm still sort of, my mind is still reeling from all the things I learned about cyanobacteria. Um, um, but uh, we're gonna go ahead and start our group large group discussion. And for this discussion, um, even though I don't know very much about cyanobacteria at all, I'm gonna moderate, so that means um, <laughs> that means I'm going to tell, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell folks uh, uh, if you have the. I'll tell you if you have the floor or uh, if you don't. Um, so I'll pass this cordless mic around. It's the one with the yellow tape. Um, and please use it um, in order uh, to enable those with hearing impairments to hear and also because we are recording your conversation for podcast. Um, please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak, even though I don't know anything about cyanobacteria. Um, still. Well, I learned a lot. I, I know a little bit. Enough, en <laughs> enough to get into trouble, I'm sure. Um, so um, a couple of other uh, sort of ground rules. Um, if you can limit your questions or comments to 30 seconds to a minute, um, that enables us to get to more questions so more people can talk. Um, and I might interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, <laughs> so uh, likewise, I'm going to try to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, um, just to diversify the voices and so that more people can participate. Um, and I always hope that this part will feel more like a group discussion rather than just a question and answer session, although these guys are, are, are here to help answer your questions. Um, but there's lots of expertise in the room, and I'm pointing to these lab members over here um, and other folks in the room. So um, please feel free to address comments uh, as well as questions to the group. Um, also, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate, um, even if we address sometimes controversial or uncomfortable issues. So please be nice to each other or else. Um, and finally, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, 
um, you'll have to help clean up the next harmful algal bloom in Lake Erie. Please turn off your phone. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So there were, um, th there was a very pessimistic view of uh, cyanobacteria, and there was a very optimistic view. How do you, it, it, it seems to me that there's something very usable here if you can somehow sequester the, har the possible harmful effects. And I don't know if that's something that has been, I, I'm sure somebody's thinking about it. Um, hmm. So sequester the harmful effect. So. Oh yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Continue. I, mean, I think as far as you know, what's happening in the environment. I think. I mean, I was just talking with people at the table here. Of, I mean, this actually. I think the. Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and, and the, the whole uh, policy organizing mechanisms that are put in place actually fu has functioned really well. And so, and like I was talking about the Ohio EPA, for example, has been a really active player and, and others as well. Um, where they kind of look and they, they try to fund the science that needs to be done to kind of figure out, okay, what seems to be like driving factors and, and what could we do then immediately to translate that into policy. Um, and so, for example, right now there's sort of a a guideline they're trying to implement to try to reduce inputs into the mommy basin basically by 40 percent of of uh, uh, phosphorus um and so to the extent i think yeah people are really trying to find solutions to to the harnessing in in lakes um so um you know containing them in bioreactors of course that's you know i think that's it's reasonably feasible to contain them and that that problem doesn't spill over um it, the challenge with the reduction is, of course, at this point, we're in non-point. You know, before, they basically said, okay, take the phosphorus out of detergents and things like that, and then we'll solve a lot of things. Now, it's it's much more diffuse problem. Um, and then the problem of a lot of the things that is there in the sediment now, and we'll keep fueling it for a long time. Um, I don't know if that immediately answers it, but, um, you know, know. Just to add to the idea of containment and... Um, you know, uh, cyanobacteria. Yes, they can they can grow uncontrollably if if given the chance um, and the right conditions. Uh, but for example, if we if we just highlight these photobioreactors, for example, um, they they are quite literally confined in PVC piping directly plumbed to the source. Um, and then when we're done with them, we spin them down and use them for commercially viable products. Um, uh, there is no, there is no direct connection to, and this is actually one of the reasons why they use photobioreactors in particular, rather than large ponds that can get contaminated by ducks, and they contaminate uh, the ecosystem. Um, it's, a, it's an isolated process. Yeah. Hi. Oh. Hello. Um, I have a related question. And then it's it's actually a couple questions here, but um, so it does seem to me that I'm having a hard time finding uh, specific common ground between both of your research subjects. Um, so yeah, I was wondering. Well, I was wondering, does does the molecular biologist secretly root for more blooms in the Great Lakes? Is he 
using banned phosphorus detergents in his laundry. And then, um, you know, so I'm wondering if you might be able to touch on where you both, where you, if you have discussions uh, outside of this uh, pub, if you, what you talk about, and then, um, and then also this, the question to our molecular bio, I'm sorry, I forget your name, Art. Anthony, I'm sorry. Anthony, um, when you have, when you insert the uh, ice, icosahedral uh, shells and the, the rubisco into plants, there's no transfer of uh, the, this has nothing, it won't transfer the um, processes that create the uh, toxicity when you do it. <laughs> Where do we start? Um, so yeah, our common ground is uh, certainly cyanobacteria, but oh, I think I sh should say at the beginning that maybe it wasn't, it's not entirely obvious, is that um, everything is, everything can be good in moderation. Um, and, and the corollary is also uh, true. Um, to answer your question quickly, because I, see, I think there is a, a little bit of a, a misconception that all cyanobacteria are toxic. Um, that's not the case. Microcystis has a gene that makes the toxin, which you, so, you, so in our lab, for example, we, we work with microcystis all the time, but we use the variant that doesn't have that gene. So we can drink it and we'll be just fine. Um, uh, but it has, it has uh, what we do for these carboxysomes and putting them into plants, or even whenever we're genetically modifying them in the lab, um, they are genes that are, are known to be specifically required for making a carboxysome and the associated enzymes. Yeah, I think I was also thinking of the, the fact that indeed not all cyanos are toxic and, and the majority of cyanos that are out there growing, including all over the oceans, you know, are, are really great and I love them. So I think there's already some great common ground. Also, my <laughs> spirulina, right? Yeah, here we go. Oh, yeah. We come together often in a Darwin cafe in our building and drink spirulina drinks, kombucha, yeah. Uh, um, but, um, but on a more serious note, actually this toxin gene and, and the present, that's actually an interesting one because it's also in Lake Erie and it's, it's some of the research that, you know, some of the people here uh, from the lab that are, that are here are actually involved in this. Is trying, so when we talk about, oh, there's microcystis in Lake Erie, okay, what is that? It actually turns out it's this really complex mixture of a lot of different subtypes that are all co-occurring and, and that are, might be really important actually to maintain. Why is that bloom staying there for months? Why isn't something killing it, right? Or, you know, something should be, I mean, it's, it's ecology. Whenever there's a lot of something, something's gonna, else going to come there and kill it. But so why not? And, and so all this complexity that exists in there is actually really intriguing and it's, it's related to yeah, the toxicity production also, right? You can have a bloom. You might have had an image there. I took it out um, in the more shorter version to be able to stick to the time limits. But there were two images, and one was this bright green, you know, water, and the other one was like, oh, it was like a little bit of it. And it was sort of the question, which water would you rather drink, right? And probably most people are like, well, the one that's maybe just a little bit green. Uh, turns out, no, that one actually is highly toxic, while the other one was not. And so. It's not because you see a lot that it's necessarily toxic, right? Because they might not, they might have the gene and not produce the toxin, or they might not have the gene. And so, understanding why it's there, when it's made, uh, a lot of this, and that's sort of one of the things that was on there, the nitrogen part, right? A lot of the focus right now is on trying to get less phosphorus in the water, but by doing that, we might maybe get smaller blooms that are more toxic, because we get actually a higher ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus than 
which will basically you know favor the one because so why is that nitrogen actually microcystin has a lot of nitrogen in it so it's really costly to produce if there's not much nitrogen there's no microcystin produced right so but if you change sort of these ratios so it's, it's one of these things we're making these policies now to get less phosphorus but we don't a side effect might be at smaller bloom, but we're going to have way more water shutoffs. Anyway, so but common ground, yes. Uh, so spirulina kombucha, um, uh, not sleeping at night because of kids, and and you know, um, just a um, love for the mystery of the of the microbial world. So. Hi. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a statistic uh, that these cyanobacteria have accounted for half of drawdown of CO2. Uh, maybe I misheard that, but I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more um, about that, if that is including ocean and land processes, and if there's a, a time limit you see for that, for that advantage because of climate change and possibly ocean acidification, um, different land processes, like you're saying, these different ratios changing. Um, chemistry of ocean and lake processes. Um, yeah, do you see that being a time limit for uh, taking advantage of this sequestration potential for, from these organisms? So I'll, I'll do a first take, and then so so the half is basically um, it's all micro all algae basically all phytoplankton. So this includes the cyanos uh, as well as eukaryotic algae. Um, and so it's a bit of a mix. It depends where in the, o for example, in the oceans, depends where you are. Most of the open ocean is all dominated by cyanos, but then, you know, again, it's going to depend a little bit. Um, but anyway, all the small little things, it's about half of what we know right now in CO2 drawdown and oxygen production is, is you know, half is plants, half is land plants, half is these little things. Um, as far as like changing, that it's a really good question. I think you know it's um, it, how are things, and people are studying that. Like, okay, how is ocean acidification impacting you know synthetic rates? But maybe you might uh, be more finer tuned into some of those answers. I would just say, um, so uh, you know, cyanobacteria and plants both use carbon dioxide for their growth, and um, plants. Uh, if you give them too much s carbon dioxide, it's actually toxic. Whereas cyanobacteria, we grow them in the lab at, what are we at, 5%? 2 to 5%, that is orders of magnitude more than what a plant could withstand. And so I just, I'm bringing that up because you want to think about uh, what the world's going to look like in 100 years when there is really high CO2. Everybody, some, some people argue that, yes, Lots of CO2, don't worry, the plants will figure it out. They'll be able to take all that CO2, grow faster, and produce more oxygen. Uh, what will likely happen is the acidification of oceans, tons of jellyfish, cyanobacterial mats, um, and, and, and resulting dead zones. Um, I, think I'll, I think I'll leave it at that awkward silence, because that type of issue, I think, requires an awkward silence. Who's the optimist now? <laughs> Yeah, I just want to ask, what kind of symptoms did uh, do people get in the, the toxic algae, and, and how do you know before they close beaches? And going way back, uh, I remember the blue-green algae was cultivated uh, all over Oregon and put in capsules for health food and so forth. So how do we get to a healthy uh, cyanobacteria? 
Um, so, you know, the, for definitely around here, there's there's really good monitoring done um, on the on the toxin level. So how so the tox it how it affects you? It depends on which cyanide it is or which toxin. Uh, microcystin uh, targets the liver, so any organism with a liver can get affected by it. Um, it's mostly through ingestion. Um, and uh, and cause can cause liver failure and death. So it's a really bad one. Um, uh, it gets monitored really well, and and you know like normally the water intake managers monitor really well. It can be treated, uh, but they need to not you know do the appropriate treatment for the amount that comes in. Um, on the other hand, um, one of the challenges what happened in Toledo is partially like. It's ramping up much quicker than they anticipated, changing wind patterns that move to, so it's really difficult, complicated hydrodynamics that move the things around. They're trying to improve and improve those models to make better predictions to kind of work with the water intake managers. Uh, on the other hand, unlike the, the health pills, yeah, it's one of these things that we sometimes also, it's very poorly regulated, uh, what goes in these pills, right? Um, again, a lot of cyanos are fine, right? But um, but I, I don't know what the quality control there is on toxin uh, toxin levels. But um, you know, stay away from it, I guess. <laughs> Spirulina should be fine, I guess. But if it's microcystis on the label, stay away from it. Stay away from the label. Say microcystis. Yeah. I had a, a couple of questions. One was, could you talk about some of the sequestration options that there are? And then secondly, with the, the fuel you were talking about from the cyano, would that be like a carbon neutral solution? Would, you, would it get burned and then turn back into CO2 versus the fossil fuels, which it's already sequestered carbon, we're just releasing it into the atmosphere? Or is there a different byproduct than carbon when it's burned? Um, I'm gonna forget a whole bunch of the questions that you asked. Uh, the one that stuck with me is the, um, Yes, uh, whether it's a biofuel or a fossil fuel, the result is the same. Uh, however, the difference is sustainability. Um, being able to take out carbon at a rate that's roughly equivalent to how much you're putting in, which is not what we're doing right now. Um, and so I was sort of, I was having this discussion, uh, is there are, some, there are some states, some governments that are um, not in favor of uh, sustainable energies, um, because they are not uh, very, at the, at the moment, not very cost effective. Jana, what was the number you gave me for solar, solar panels? So we're at 17% efficiency for solar panels. But that's largely because, you know, we are a fossil oil driven industry or, or civilization and we put a lot of money into making that process very efficient and we have to do the same for sustainable energies. Uh, anyways, that's a bit of a backstory for what I was showing you for the University of Kentucky, where 90% um, of their energy in, in, in the state of Kentucky is from um, uh, coal-fired uh, power plants. And it's gonna be very hard to just make everybody switch to sustainable energies um, instantaneously. And so the reason why the University of Kentucky is taking advantage of cyanobacteria and coupling them to power uh, coal-fired power plants is that they're asking companies to do exactly what you're doing now, but put some cyanobacteria on your tailpipe um, so that you become carbon neutral. So keep on doing what you're doing, just put these bacteria on. Um, and that's um, something that many companies will likely get behind as opposed to completely revamping where they're getting their energy from.
Yeah, I'd, I'd like to uh, ask, uh, actually both of you, to uh, address relationships between, um, that have to do with uh, Great Lakes water uh, and the relationships among um, xeno, uh, xenotic organisms like the uh, mussel, uh, zebra mussel, uh, and its uh, hyper uh, filtration of uh, Great Lakes water, and the relationship between that and cyanobacteria, and to the extent that these, they've been here now, what, 30, 40 years, that there is mitigation, that is, there are natural uh, predators and um, recovery in the systems. Um, to what extent is this occurring, and to what extent is, does this give us hope for the future? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah thank you. Uh, so we're talking about that a little bit on, um, so at this point, so the zebra mussels came, they exploded, and then they were overtaken by quagga mussels. And so the zebra mussel kind of goes, overshoots its carrying capacity, collapses. Quagga mussels seem to come up and just know where the carrying capacity is and, and will hover there. Um, so Lake Michigan is sort of covered coast to coast right now. Um, uh, there are signs that things are, um, you know, so the, the mid lakes are very, there's more than 200 invasive species at this point in the Great Lakes Basin. Uh, most of them came in through once, well, they all came in once the, the St. Well, once the St. Lawrence Seaway was opened uh, and then partially the, the Chicago River also. Um, um, so, so there's other invasives. Um, so we're just talking about uh, there. So we were involved in a project at Sleeping Bear Dunes. Uh, which involves uh, National Park Service, the Michigan DNR, University of uh, Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, and they've been working there for years and we kind of uh, came in now and it's related to avian botulism, which is also connected to the mussels. But um, so um, they've done this removal there of, uh, of an area on the, so in Good Harbor Bay, some of you might be familiar with that area, uh, there's this rocky reef out there. And rocky reefs are really important for fish recruitment. Um, because it's a little bit of a protected area, so it's good for egg deposition, larval, larval development. Um, and so they removed like an area where they scraped physically, they scraped off the muscles, um, and then there's control plots. And even normally, uh, people might have tried this if they have a dock somewhere or a boat or whatever, or maybe with boats, right? Uh, anytime that's in the water for a little bit, it quickly grows full of muscles again. Um, and so normally what I expect, okay, it'll probably come back, but actually after a couple of years, it still hasn't come back, why? Invasive gobies actually uh, eat the mussels, especially these little mussels that are growing back. Uh, and in part also, like whitefish have started turning to it, in part because they've drawn, the mussels have drawn down so much calcium out of the lakes because they need it for their shells, that their shells are getting thinner, and so they're easier to eat by predators. Um, the gobies actually serve as a food source for uh, trout. So trout is making a comeback, <laughs> which was decimated by the invasion of lampreys. Um, there's a beautiful book on this, uh, the, the Death and Life of the Great Lakes, and some of you might have read it, which is beautifully uh, retelling the history, and it made the death and life in the sense of there's hope, there's optimism, right? Um, so the system always adapts. Of course, the system keeps on getting hammered by new stressors, right? And so we need to try to stop doing that. Um, but there, is, there are signs that things are adjusting, um, getting rid of the muscles. So there, there's, there's some projects where they're trying to figure out some ways, you know, how do we combat this at least at a local scale. It's gonna be tricky probably at a, at a global scale. But of course there's still, you know, the, the quaggas came up early to mid 2000s and they're sort of at this point, they're plateauing in Lake Michigan at least. Um, 
and um, and so we'll see. It's it you know the system continuously uh, changes, so we'll see. There are signs of adaptation, but it's let's. I think the important thing is let's stop hammering the system because you know. Um, I want to give uh, one of the last questions for the Science Cafe to Andrea Scott. Uh, who is a longtime chair of the museum, Museum's Advisory Board. Before I do that, uh, I want to say a couple of things. Um, your evaluations are red uh, today. I, I think they ran out of yellow and orange paper. Um, <laughs> uh, but please use them anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, we really do tally and, and uh, tally all of your ideas and all of your answers to those questions and they really do affect uh, how we plan future science cafes. And I just want to recognize uh, Lisa Asselman and Sarah Carrillo, uh, who are two of the people who do that tallying and also help at our science cafes. And, um, and Matt Linke, who, uh, who has run sound these very many years. And, um, and also our development officer, Nora Weber, uh, who is here to accept your donations and memberships. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, so as we take a hiatus, we're not going away. We will be looking over these for ideas uh, for things to do in the fall of 2019 and possibly for Detroit Science Cafe ideas uh, should that come about. Please watch out uh, around May of next year. You might see something about that. I don't know. We're, we're still working on it. But yeah, Andrea had, had a question. Well, it's more of a comment, and now I feel like if I'm the last, I don't like the fact that it's sort of pessimistic, but um, I was interested to hear you say in talking about policy that you saw some hopeful signs, which kind of surprised me because um, what I've seen from the Great Lakes Pact, states and uh, provinces, is not very hopeful to me in, a, in terms of getting big things, big solutions uh, resolved. And two things come to mind immediately that the pact very recently, and this is not about uh, cyanobacteria, but it, I just think it's in the same ballpark. Um, they voted to permit a city near Milwaukee to take uh, fresh water out of Lake Michigan. And also, uh, after being berated by Chicago, Illinois, um, they are letting the Asian carp move closer and closer to Lake Michigan. And their reason for being, to my mind as a citizen, is to protect those lakes. And I don't see them doing that. My hope is that Canada will, because I think Canada is always ahead of us on things like that. So I'm holding out for them. And you know, the Line 5 pipeline, that's all a Michigan problem. Hopefully it'll change uh, with a new governor. But there is a Great Lakes Pact, and that's where recent history, to me, it does not look promising. So maybe you could say, end by saying, well, the bacteria is a whole different story, and things are going to get done. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously, you know, cases where maybe things could be better, I would agree. Um, but I think at the same time, I think it has shown in the past, like with you know the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, that you know fairly swiftly when people started gathering the data, and I don't know if you see that on those graphs, first it was other, 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 and then they started specifically looking for you know point 
um, um, you know, point sources, right? And identify that, oh, that's a big chunk. If we can bring that back down, that's gonna be, you know. Uh, and so implemented it and it, it did work. Um, um, so as far as, you know, going ahead, I think, I mean, so there are, you know, it's not, um, in a formal agreement, I believe, but like you know, there's a new guideline that's been developed on like a 40% reduction of reactive phosphorus inputs, and and I think you know, I think on the ground, I see. A lot, I mean, interacting with the people at NOAA, um, you know, Ohio EPA. I mean, I think there's a lot of people care about these resources. I think there's a lot of people that really care about the Great Lakes uh, in in these areas. Uh, maybe you know, at the federal level, it's different, but I think across party lines, you know, Republican, Democrats, uh, Independent. Uh, well, there's no independence in, in, from these states um, in Washington, but okay, from these two parties, they, they all basically are on the same side of, you know, protecting this resource. Maybe they have different, you know, reasons why, but in the end, you know, everybody wants to protect this resource. And so, you know, the ways we go about it, they might differ and this and that, but I think, uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear some of the, the things we can very quickly, you know, or not quickly, that where there's, you know, like the nutrient inputs, um, where they have set up guidelines and there is a willingness to try to address it. So, so I'm, you know, I, don't wanna, I think I want to be optimistic on that level. You know, it's never going to be perfect. Um, and, you know, when there's a lot of money, people with a lot of money, they tend to force exceptions. Um, that's sad, but, you know, um, as long as we live in a, well, anyway, let's not go to, <laughs> we'll talk, my talk about the you know, post-capitalist world will be in the next science, no. <laughs> but anyway, so that's just my, my two cents there, but. Um. I say Wisconsin just got rid of Scott Walker, so, you know. Progress. Okay. I just feel, So I just feel like I, I, I was started as the optimist. And then, uh, as you can see, I, I showed my true colors during the discussion. But, and my students can vouch for the fact that I occasionally pop in and just, well, the end of the world is gonna end. Why are we even doing this? What a waste of time. Uh, I, 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 I just, I feel like I, you know, as a, <laughs> feel like I owe it to my students to say in front of all of you that I'm a pessimist because it makes me work harder. Um, if I keep on thinking that it's too late, uh, it makes us work faster. Um, I'm not giving up, and, and none of us, none of us should. Thank you very much for making Science Cafes fun, because without an audience, they would be no fun at all. Um, so I, I really, really appreciate all of you. Um, if you're interested in meeting more scientists, uh, we will continue with our scientist spotlight programs where we have scientists present uh, um, and people can go around and they've, they have activities. But I have to tell you guys a secret. The scientist spotlight activities are not just for kids. I'm serious. Okay, I'm a little bit of an enthusiast, um, but you know I have trilobite earrings. I, I I'm a little geeky, on, you know. But seriously, you will enjoy talking to these scientists during our scientist spotlights as an adult. It's a great date, so I hope you come to those. Um, and science cafes will continue. They will. Um, 
but not until next fall. Right, so just a, just a brief break. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good night.